Hello, I'm a cute girl. And Matthew said, call and say naughty things. I'd rather say dirty things to Matthew. So I say these dirty things to Matthew right now. Convenience store bathroom. Mud. My bathroom floor. Okay, I go now. Don't forget to listen to Geek Out Loud. Geekoutpodcast.com. Bye-bye. The Major Spoilers podcast covers news, reviews, and of course, spoilers, and goes into details about the topics discussed. So if you haven't read, listened, or watched the items we talk about, you might want to come back later. I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. And I'm Steven, and you're listening to the Major Spoilers podcast, the show for pop culture and comic fans. In this issue, Peter Coogan returns, and we actually talk normally as we tackle adaptations. Super bad and man-man may make their way to your screens. Felicity and her friends deflect bullets with their wrists. Plus, what went wrong with Denny Colt? Big-eyed robots slay one another for your love. And the dead live! The dead live! Oh! Welcome, everybody, to this week's show. And one of the things we have to remind Matthew is when you scream into the mic, the auto-gain clamps oh. you down so hard that it takes a moment to get it back up. But, hey, we do have a really good show for you this week. I'm excited to talk adaptations with Peter Coogan uh, later in the episode. But one thing that we want to do this week is talk about news. And instead of spending 50 minutes on news and then rushing through the rest of the show, what I thought we would do is I would throw out three news topics... And we would pick one. Or actually, I would let the Wheel of Destiny choose which one we would talk about. Okay. All right? So here we have. We have uh, our, our news items are the San Diego Comic-Con four-day passes sell out. Superman Batman Public Enemies is the next DC animated movie. Or Marvel Movies Restructure Release Date. So here we go. And we're going to spin the Wheel of Destiny. And we get two... Superman, Batman, next DC animated movie. Yes. After Green Lantern? Uh, after Green Lantern, it will be the first arc of the Superman-Batman run. This would have been the, what is it, the Ed Brubaker? No, not Ed Brubaker. Who is that, Matthew? No, not Brubaker. It was, um, yeah, wait, no. Um, the guy who draws with Ed Brubaker. The guy who wrote it was like, I think it was Joe Oh, Kelly. Jeff, no, it's actually Jeff Loeb and Ed McGinnis. Yeah, same guys. Yeah. And it's got that awesome scene where Batman... Wait, no, where Hawkman punches out Superman. Right. Right. Because that's believable. Yes. I I'm, I don't know. I like that first He's arc. Egyptian. It can happen. Yeah, it's magic. Superman's weakness magic. to magic. Is this, an, is, this an interesting, is this an interesting story to adapt? I mean, we're talking about adaptations mm-hmm. uh, this week. Is this something you'd be interested in seeing, Matthew? Yes and no. I think that it would be something I'd be interested in seeing. The problem that I have is that there are a lot of characters in there that you have to kind of understand what's going on. Well, uh, I mean, that's the appearance really the... of Captain Marvel, the Hawkman, Lex Luthor. There's a lot of context to it. Right. So I think they might have to streamline it and simplify it. But yeah, especially if they do it in that Ed McGuinness style. I would love for it to I be would in the Ed McGuinness style. I would love to see that. I didn't think you were a big fan of Ed McGuinness's style because everybody's kind of weird proportions and everything. It's. It's internally consistent. Mm-hmm. It's blocky and kind of cartoony. Yeah. But it's like it's a Bruce Tim kind of cartoony and not like a, a Rob Liefeld, I can't draw feet kind of cartoony. Oh, okay. Right, All right. right. His Captain Adam was awesome. His Captain Marvel. His Hawkman 
is probably the best looking Hawkman yeah. since you know Steve Lieber. I like his Wonder Woman hmm. for some odd yeah. reason. What do you, you think? like? You like a woman with a big, broad shoulders yes. and a square jaw. Yes, Rodrigo. What do you think of uh, of this news? Oh, I'm excited, especially because it seems that DC is um, uh, on a kick to kind of reinvent a lot of the characters for these uh, features. I'm I'm looking forward to seeing hopefully a new take on Superman and Batman that will be a little bit different from the JLU. I mean, I love those characters and I love what they did with them there. Right. So I'm hoping that this will be, you know, kind of a brand new standalone thing, what, that is its own thing. One of the Rodrigo and I were talking before the show about uh, Andrea Romano and her ability to cast people in certain roles, mm-hmm. and of course, no announcements of who will be starring in these roles or anything like that. But I'm like, man, I sure would like to find out why Kevin Conroy isn't always cast as Batman, mm. which caused Rodrigo to go, Kevin Conroy. <laughs> What do you got against Kevin Conroy? I got nothing against Kevin Conroy. I just think there is more to Batman than Kevin Conroy. And Kevin Conroy should be able to do other things besides Batman. For me, the eternal Batman is always Olin Sewell. I've been Sewell. Vo- no, Olan Sewell, the guy who did Batman on the Super Friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, kind of, that kind of nasal high-pitched voice, Robin, where everything sounded like it was a high school Spanish yes. professor <laughs> explaining to you... Deet. Why things Turn the film you... strip now. <laughs> Flip the film Please strip. stand by. <laughs> did you have film strips? Here we see the... I did, I, we did have some. Okay. Mostly we, like we film have strip, like... Film strips, not no, no, like 16 no, no. millimeter film. No, we have like, like, like audio book. Oh, okay. Like, okay. Com- so that's Oops, that's the only okay. reference I get. Okay, all right, all right. Uh, you kind of had to grow up in the Midwest in the 70s yeah. to understand <laughs> the whole film strip thing. Oh, boy. Hiawatha then paddled his canoe. Beep. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I'm pretty excited about this. I do like the last couple of uh, DC movies, uh, directed DVD movies, I've actually enjoyed. Mm-hmm. The only exception being the Death of Superman one. I didn't think that that translated well as an adaptation from the comic book story to the screen. But New Frontier, loved it. Uh, what was the other one that came out recently? Oh, the Batman anime one? Mm-hmm. Loved it. Rodrigo and I will be talking about Wonder Woman here in a few moments. Batman-a-may. Batman-a-may. Yes, Batman-a-may. <laughs> so I'm, I'm pretty excited about this news. It looks like we are going to see Superman, Batman, Public Enemies in stores this fall. And, of course, you can And I, I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, I, I have some inside dirt in that the voices of Superman and Batman mm-hmm. are actually going to be done by Wally Cox <laughs> and by the Pope. <laughs> Hello, I am the Batman. And I am the Batman. And I am Superman. I am the darkness. I am the night. I am uh, the Batman. I am the terror that flaps in the way. That's not me. That's a talk. I apologize for the inconvenience. Can I assist you with anything else? We have so many news stories up at Majorspoilers.com that you just have to head over there for yourself. Check it out. Updated every single day. Uh, We did get an email, a couple emails in this week. I wanted to read one from our good friend Bruce Otter. Uh, Bruce had commented about how much he liked the uh, the Dark Crystal episode from uh, last week when we were talking about it on the show. Apparently it's one of his uh, all-time favorite movies. Uh, but he did want us to, to remind everyone, if you haven't seen The Dark Crystal, or if you're a fan of The Dark Crystal, and you live in the Denver area or want to go to Denver this weekend, The Dark Crystal will be showing at the Midnight Movie 
at Denver's Esquire Theater on March 20th and 21st. Uh, he says this is this coming weekend. Thought you guys might want to give a heads up to any spoilerites in the area. You too can go meet Bruce Otter in awesome. person. I'm I'm kind of. I kind of hope that I that I never meet Bruce Otter He's because a cool guy. because I'm terrified that he will actually not be a little cartoon otter with like a top hat and and like a vest and a bow tie. And he's got really big eyes. Yeah, like, you know, exactly. Because even on the website, he refers to like his wife as Mrs. Otter, and I'm like, oh come on, they have to be otters now. The sad part is he kind of looks like you. Awesome. Well, uh, apparently I'm some kind of tropical salamander, so I guess Hello, I am out. Rodrigo. Hello, I am the author. Hello, let us be friends and we will dig for for some sort of roots or something. We, we, don't have, know. we have so many people writing us. We can't include all emails. Certainly there's the comment section up on the Major Spoilers website for any story if you'd like to comment on that. Or head over to the forums. I'm really pleased with what Rodrigo's been doing in streamline, stream, streamlining streamliming mm-hmm. he's been uh, throwing it away so those rocky mountain ticks stay away from you yep. uh but i like what he's doing with the forums <laughs> Somebody finally got my, my what's, what's he been lining all the streams with lime uh but he's, <laughs> <laughs> he's uh making everything run so much smoother over there at the forums if you are uh, registering and you don't get in right away. It is taking us a little bit of time because we do have a lot of spammers. Man, and do we have order. spam? So we're yeah, trying to cut that down uh, just a tad. So be patient with us there. Uh, it also helps to not have the phrase Viagra, Viagra, Viagra in yeah, your username. Yeah, yeah, or the uh, country extension dot ru. Yeah. We also <laughs> get a lot of phone calls up at the major spoilers uh, Skype uh, number, which again Matthew is. Seven eight seven seven two seven nine six three zero two five nine. Let's let me start that over. <laughs> okay, Matthew, that seven, phone number is seven eight five seven two seven one nine three nine seven two seven nineteen thirty nine. Major spoilers, something or other. If you would, if you're going to leave a question, a comment, uh, criticism, whatever, try to keep it short. If you want to have it included in the show, um, and it also helps if you talk like a this. Yes, like our friend no, up there at the beginning no, of of the show. <laughs> Hello, I am a major spoilers fan, and I really like a cheese. So, with our review, with our news out of the way, it is time to move into reviews. reviews. Uh, yeah, we got a letter from Yahoo too. Season, we're getting we're getting a cease and desist letter from somebody. Either the Cohen Brothers or Yahoo. Actually, that uh, I've got that song somewhere, and it's not by the Cohen. Review, 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 review. So, Matthew, why don't you kick us off with a book review that you did this week, and then Rodrigo and I are going to discuss a DVD review that we. Uh, that I'd we like to review a book called Hotwire Requiem for the Dead. Okay, number two, right? Number two of four. I believe this is actually a book that Warren Ellis and I believe it's pronounced Steve Pugh, or Pugaha. Either way, Stephen Warren uh, actually created it for another publisher, and uh, like one or two issues came out, and then now they're actually re-soliciting or rerunning the issues that were that were created and finishing the story through Radical. Radical. Comics. That's what I was going to say. Radical Comics. Radical Publishing. Radical's kind of up and coming. I'm really enjoying some of the stuff from Radical. It's not your average comic story, right? Uh, Hot Hotwire Number Two kind of throws me right into the middle of things, but it doesn't throw me into something that I, that's above my head. Basically, we start this issue um, with rioting in the city, a city, mm-hmm. some city, mm-hmm. 
Pick a city. We don't know. It's just the city. And during these riots, the cops are trying to control things. And all of a sudden, someone walks into police headquarters and he's like, I'm not well. I, I, I need to see a doctor. And he turns around and he's this rotting zombie corpse. Oh, my goodness. Zombies again and this week? No, this is interesting because he's like, I try to check my pulse, but I think I'm doing it wrong. And it's just a creepy, creepy scene. And he's he's surrounded by this strange ectomorphic plasmic sort of energy. Is this, what I think this story Egon would call in the future? a repeating vapor. Is this a I'm not sure if it's the future or the past or kind of a cyberpunk alternate universe. Okay. The the architecture has a very old school kind of like mid I don't know, Dark Ages London feel to it. Very okay. gothic. But we immediately cut from that zombie to Hotwire herself, uh, this little tiny almost albino blonde woman in the field with her police partner taking on what's essentially a ghost. Weird. Yeah, she's an exorcist for all intents and purposes for the police. Wow. And this ghost has somehow, you know, possessed a person. And we have this really entertaining moment where she's yelling at He must be opening up files again. Yeah. At him explaining how she's important and he's <laughs> Hotwire, Requiem for the Dead number two. Radical oh, Comics. Uh, uh, did I break up? Did yes, I break yes, up? You did. did I break up? Stop. Now you're doing it on purpose. <laughs> did, 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 all right, I'm back now. All right. Anyway, Hotwire ends up taking down a ghost, and it's kind of a primer on what she does and how she does it. She heads back to headquarters, and we find that this creature who walked in with the pulse and the creepy, creepy is actually what's called a ghost bomb. A ghost bomb? A ghost bomb. He was told that he would be muling drugs across the border, but he's actually been implanted with the spirit of a, a blue lighter, which is what they call their ghosts. And he is basically just a delivery system for this destructive creature. Wow. And this it, it's so really much interesting. better than super zombies. Yeah, it really is better than super zombies. But then what isn't? <laughs> Well, I'm trying to I don't want to be too uh, mean to the creators of Super Hunter. Zombies because they probably put their heart and soul on the page. I'm just saying, not a good book. Yeah. Now, <laughs> um, and we reviewed it oh, twice. Yes. <laughs> That's right. The book so nice, reviewed it twice, and each time it got funnier every time we read it. I was just driving through the rice paddies on my way to work the other day. <laughs> and uh, my rice paddy. Anyway. There's no, Hotwire there's no figures out what's like going on with this quote-unquote ghost bomb. Yeah. Air quotes! <laughs> and uh, she ends up taking it down because she figures out that it's not the ghost that's tied to the body. And the whole thing is she's then given a countdown. Because there was some sort of nuclear device implanted in the man's body to power this ghost, they now have 36 hours before the Department of Homeland something or other comes in and basically just Quarantine annihilates the, the whole city in order to control the nuclear whatever it is. Wow, so this is like Ghostbusters on acid or on a kick or something. It's actually, it's got some Ghostbusters bits to it. It's got, you know, the buddy cop movie thing. It's got a little bit of almost a superhero vibe in that Hotwire herself wears a distinctive outfit and has a distinctive look and what you might call powers. It feels a little like um, it has some overtones of the Anita Blake uh, comics yeah. and books. Yeah, cool. It has kind of a, a Buffy overtone in bits and pieces, which is nice. But the whole thing kind of hinges on the main character, who is likably obnoxious throughout. Nice. 
at one point she gets a little drunk and nearly starts a bar fight, which I think is nice. But overall, it's a good issue. It's very Warren Ellisy. There are a lot of moments where you look at it and you're just like, hey, this this sure is a Warren Ellis comic. <laughs> and then you look but, at the cover and Yeah. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's well drawn. The art isn't, you know, your standard issue superhero stuff. Yeah. But the main character, it's all I think it's painted most of the way through. I was say, the main character is, the... is very striking and from panel to panel, you can tell that she's the same character, not just because of her hair color. Right. But her body shape, her facial shape, her expressions remain static and i love that i love it when you have a face that actually has more than one expression right. to it and it's still recognizably the same face over and all this book actually makes me want to pick up hotwire three and four cool and i bet you we Which, can get you hotwire number one if you haven't read it yeah you might want to throw that my way i actually like it i'm gonna go with four slices of meatloaf nice. it's well written it's very well drawn it's got some compelling stuff and while it's got I think anymore a lot of concepts you can boil them down to. This is Ghostbusters meets Buffy meets Policewoman, but it's more than the sum of its parts, right. which is more than you can say, as we'll get to later in the show, for many adaptations. Yep. Mm -hmm. So I would go with four slices of meatloaf. Excellent. Well, Presuming that the meatloaf doesn't have a ghost bomb. Whoa, no, ghost bomb meatloaf. Ghost meatloaf. <laughs> ghost meatloaf. <laughs> Ghost Bomb Meatloaf. When you guys see us at the uh, Planet Comic Con in a couple of weeks, if you come up to us and say Ghost Bomb Meatloaf, we're probably going to look at you funny and go, what the F are you talking about, man? And Steven will do the truffle shuffle. <laughs> <laughs> That's something I would like to see. Do the truffle shuffle! <laughs> Speaking of adaptations, since we are on adaptations this entire episode... Uh, Rodrigo and I took some time today. Warner, Warner Home Entertainment, Warner Home Video, sent us a copy of the Wonder Woman animated movie, this latest release from, from Warner Brothers in D.C., which is uh, essentially an origin story mm -hmm. of Wonder Woman, but not quite an origin story because it's, it's taking the best parts from Wonder Woman's history and giving us a new tale where we find out... Uh, of course, Steve Trevor comes to the island, and she has to escort him home. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, she's also being sent out into the world of man to bring back Ares, the god of war who has escaped capture and who is probably going to destroy the planet if she doesn't causing, do it. Causing all kinds of hijinks. Yes, like hijinks, shenanigans. Hiding people's shoes Wacky and shenanigans. parking in the handicapped spaces, stuff like that. Yes, those kinds of things. <laughs> i got to tell you, holy crap, in the first ten minutes of the movie— you're going to see two beheadings at least. Yeah. You're going to see blood and gore and arrows and swords going through people. Mystical monsters and gods all appearing on the panel. And again, that's only in the first 10 minutes. Yeah. Now, I, I have a question real quick before you guys get too far. Okay. Is all the world waiting for her? Uh, no. <laughs> Can she make a hawk a dove? Uh, we don't see it in this uh, movie. Can she end a war with love? Kind of hard to tell. She kind of does. Can she, she make a Larfa does. Narfa new? Well, that she certainly does. <laughs> I, wasn't, I was never clear on what that last lyric was. So. <laughs> what did you think, Rodrigo? I want to get some general impressions for you because, I mean, after that first opening sequence. Yeah. Um, I, I actually, we, we watched the opening, the, the, the whole opening sequence that, that all takes place like in mythical times. Right. Um and and I just turned to Steven and I, and I was like I'm on board. Yeah, this is just it hooks you from the beginning yeah. and you know what sometimes when you watch some of these animated movies whatever 
there's parts where the story kind of drags because they have to give exposition. They have to tell you what's going on. Mm-hmm. This movie is not like that. Of the 74 minutes, probably about 60 to 65 of them are spent fight scenes. Yeah. I mean, there There's are a lot four of or five major battles that take place in this movie. And in between, we get little snippets of what's going on. Ares going to hell and getting himself freed. And uh, the reason, you know, the Wonder Woman or Diana and Steve Trevor talking about the sexes and all of these different kinds mm-hmm. of things. But it's just action, action, action throughout. And it's very fast paced. And I thought it moved very quickly. Oh, yeah. Now, what I don't understand, Matthew. Mm. I don't understand Matthew either. I don't understand Matthew either. What I don't understand, Matthew, is here is an island that the Greek gods told uh, the Amazons, hey, we understand you can't deal with this world of man. You've just gone through this big battle where you've lost everything. We're going to give you this secret island, this paradise island where you can't, well, it's actually called Themyscira, Mm -hmm. but we're going to give you paradise island that you're going to be protected from everyone, and you can live and grow and do your own thing and do forever. And it's all great. Everything's in this Greek style. They're still wearing their same outfits. And yet when it's time to send Diana out into the world, they put her in an invisible freaking jet. And they and they don't explain it. They don't explain it in Because the... there's no other technology. And here's here's the thing that I that I found really interesting. They explain every other piece of Wonder Woman's gear. They explain the, they explain the bracers. They explain why she wears a a a you know Boosty. red white and blue spankies yeah they they explain that they go into that but they don't explain the jet yeah and i was and i was just that... waiting for that explanation they're like oh well i, I was hoping they'd be like oh well we've uh, adapted the technology that brought you here cuz uh, steve trevor crashes in his right. fighter jet right. so i was like oh well that's what they're going to do nope no it's no. just here is this modern technology invisible technology here's, here's an invisible jet and she knows how to fly and do all this other thing matthew tell me maybe you know some history about the invisible jet and how it came into being for someone who has a Greek goddess Amazonian background. Maybe. All right. Maybe, maybe I do want to be a chicken fry. Um. <laughs> well, maybe I do. <laughs> it's just is something that's never made sense because here they, they do this great buildup with uh, Hippolyta. Mm-hmm. They talk about how Wonder Woman was born of mud and they show her being born from the mud and the gods giving her life. Mm-hmm. They're talking about this wonderful life and reading all these Greek and, and classic uh, documents and how their life is really based around this thing. And then, boom, here's an invisible jet. Fly to the land of man. I think the, the best explanation comes from the uh, comic book historian and philosopher Ookla the Mock. Yeah. Who said, uh, Batman's got the Batmobile, Diana's got an invisible jet. Seems like everybody else can fly, even samurai. But a stupid seahorse is all I get. <laughs> maybe I mean maybe there's, um, maybe we just don't. Maybe we should just avoid that. But I just thought this sudden appearance of the even the red, white, and blue outfit didn't yeah. quite make sense when you're looking at everyone wearing you know their togas I, or the hardcore. It. They explain why it is. Yeah, they do say it's their peace I, colors or whatever. But yeah, I don't specifically know if there was a golden age explanation of the jet. Okay. I know there was a modern explanation when John Byrne, either John Byrne or George Perez, was writing the book, I believe, where um, the jet is actually an invisible machine rather than a jet that uh, Diana uses in shapes to different forms. Ah, okay. But as far as uh, any real explanation from the Golden Age, I'm going to go with because it was cool. 
Well, yeah. this is certainly a story that takes place in modern times. I mean, this is not a World War II story, which mm-hmm. it could have very easily been and what yeah. I kind of hoped it was going to be. Uh, but it's not. Um, I love... I love the action. I love the the dialogue and exchanges. I mean, this uh, the story was written or co-written by Gail Simone, and you know she can bring the funny. Mm-hmm. And this whole dialogue exchange between St- Steve Trevor and and Diana is just classic. Especially how they, when he first comes to the island, he's like, "Oh crap!" And all the Amazons are looking at him and saying, well, "We do not know what this what this phrase means. Please explain." And then they're so offended when they find out what it is. And they're jumping all over his case throughout the movie every time he utters it until the very end where uh, Wonder Woman's about to get her get it handed to her. And she's like, oh, crap. And it's just so classic. <laughs> yeah. What did you think, Rodrigo, of the voice acting? I thought the voice acting was was very good, except for like uh, the the actress who played Hera didn't didn't really do it for me. I thought like it, it was very monologue. I mean, it was a monologue, but it came right. across very like red. Other right. than that, I thought the the voice acting was great. I think that uh, Carrie Russell definitely sounds hotter than she is, and you know, she's yeah, she does a girl. good job. I think Nathan Fillion did a good job as yeah. Steve Trevor. Um, some of the other voice actors, Doctor Octopus, is good as Hades. <laughs> Hades, yeah. That's a, um, as soon as the you crazy said that, chick, I was like, crazy chick from Sin City is good as the other Amazon. Yeah, as Artemis, the, yeah, yeah, Rosario Dawson. My problem was though. I thought they did good jobs and their voices fit their characters, but too oftentimes it did sound like the Amazons had no emotion. It was almost like mm-hmm. they were reading a lot of their lines, which was somewhat of a problem for me. That and that and the jet, but it, it was it's a good story. There's some people that say they hate the the art style of Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are like, "Well, she looks like a transvestite that didn't go through the process correctly or something." And it's just like, I never got that at all. I, I didn't either. I think. You know, she's she's a she's a girl with strong features, and I like all kinds she's, of girls. And she's Greek, so she's yeah. gonna have a strong nose. Yeah, I mean, and, and she's she's got that kind of epic superhero look. I mean, she's got you know she's statuesque. She's right. her chin doesn't come to a, a da- point to a point. Right. Um. You know, she's got it, it. You know, it's a little bit square, but she's very feminine. She has large eyes. Right. She doesn't have and, an Adam's apple. So that's right. A plus. Exactly. So, you know, <laughs> Stephen has horror stories about big hands and anatomy. Whoa, whoa, no, no, no. College was a wild time. There were certainly some. I mean, the, I, I'm thinking back. There are so many moments like the first time she comes to uh, America, which apparently, you know, she has to land in New York City and she's mm-hmm. in the park and she sees this little girl crying. She's like, well, why are you crying? Oh, those boys are playing pirates and they won't let me play. And she looks at him and goes. Well, if that's how they deal their swords, they would be dead in a moment. Here, let me show you how to do it. And she's showing the kid how to fight with a really pointy stick. And she's like, now go slay your enemy. And she goes running off, poking these kids and, and knocking them down. There's just all these little moments in the in the movie that really sell it for me. I want to sit down and watch this again, which is something that I can't say about uh, Batman anime. Mm-hmm. Uh, which you know I've watched, but I don't really have a desire to sit down and watch it again. I would sit down and watch this movie again. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's one more thing that this did really well, and that's the 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 battle of the sexes right issue. Right. Wonder Woman always risks falling on the opposite side of you know it's like blah blah patriarchal society blah 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 woman's plays blah 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 you know you risk alienating the male 
uh, side of things, right? By always having the 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 bad guys be male, by always having having them try to bond Wonder Woman, right? And, and by her by by the fact that the women are pious and the men are evil, right? Um, in this one, you know, the, there's there's a female antagonist as well, right? And there's a male protagonist, mm-hmm. and the the interchange the the exchange between um. Wonder Woman and um, Steve Trevor uh, hints at things that, yeah, you know, they they come from this hyper pure all female run society, but there's there's something wrong with that. There's some, you know, mm-hmm. you need men and women, and mm-hmm. the you know, towards the end, that you know, one of the one of the bad guys kind of delivers a very telling uh, piece of information. It's like, yeah, the Amazons are warriors, but they're also women, and they're not having men around. They've sort of forgotten that place right. in their life, which right. you know, I, I was surprised. I wasn't expecting that. Right. Or that they need that to complete right. them. Yeah, yeah. And that's where the little wahuffana-huffana comes in there at the end <laughs> with, with uh, Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor. You, you got to pay attention to the, the golden lasso throughout the piece, because yeah. it plays and leads to so many great lines. The first time that the Amazons have captured Steve Trevor, they've got him tied up in the chair, and uh, Hippolyta puts the uh, the lasso around him, and she says something to the effect of, what else are you thinking? And he goes, your daughter has a nice rack. Yep. And it's just right out there. Steve Trevor's a player, and they let it fly in this movie. This movie is not for little kids. It's not. It's got some... It doesn't have hard language in it, but it does have violence. Mm-hmm. And it's not... You know, it's not cartoony violence where, like, monsters die. It's where we see people lose their head. Yep. Uh, it has sexual innuendos. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's, I don't know, it's got some women in suggest- suggestive clothing to to a lesser extent. Uh, the women A are, Wonder the, Woman movie? The well, Amazon women are very well endowed. Let's put it that uh, the, way. I mean, one, like, the, when Steve Trevor first gets to the island, he, of yeah. course, runs into this huge... Uh, you know, clear lagoon of water where the Amazons are essentially frolicking naked. Yeah. Um, you don't, you kind of see stuff. Yeah, a little bit. Um, you know, it's all in silhouette and stuff, but I mean, it's, and it's, and a great, it's a great moment because he's like, oh, this is too good to be true. And thunk, yeah. like this arrow just lands, just, you know, sticks in the tree in front of him. And is like, and it is. Yeah. And then he goes off to a chase. Now, one other little problem that I have is it seems the more masculine the Amazon warrior, the more inclination there is to make them wear pants. Mm. Like Artemis is a great character. I think of of um, when she was first introduced in Wonder Woman, and I don't know about first introduced, but certainly in the 90s when she was introduced mm-hmm. and the whole Artemis series came out, she was drawn very sexy, very you know feminine, but a strong warrior. And here, years after they've been on Themyscira, She's walking around wearing pants, and mm. all the other people that are kind of on her, her I don't know, army or her security team, they all wear kind of pants, too, which I thought was rather an interesting choice. Well, I mean, Wonder Woman tends to kick Artemis's ass. Right. But, um, Heine, um... <laughs> <laughs> Do we have the expl- her, her butt uh, Heine? No, anyway. we're butt Heine is um, fine for the show. Her her butt Heine. She she hands her her butt Heine all the time. Um, and she <laughs> and and Wonder Woman does not at any point wear pants during this. No, she doesn't. Um, I think what they were trying to get across is it's okay to wear pants. Oh, it's okay. okay for girls to wear pants. Okay, like the tough well, I didn't chick mean wears if pants. They were meaning that the more masculine the character is, the more inclination that they were to wear pants. Well, or not. Ares 
is 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 very masculine, right. ma- very masculine to the point where it's a bad thing. Right. And I'm pretty sure he wears a skirt for yeah, most he of does. this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, Rodrigo, thoughts on this recommended? Oh, absolutely recommended. It's one of the it's one of the better directed DVD things that I've seen. I I would place it above New Frontier. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Okay. I wouldn't place it quite that I, I high. I think I think New Frontier lost a lot out of oh, the text the and that kind of yeah. you know brought it down for me. Okay. But I I think again because or not yet because we haven't gotten into that. Yeah. Yet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, because it, Wonder Woman had so much to draw from and no real expectation, it, it managed to pull off something that was really I, good. I would agree. I didn't have any expectations going into it. I was not looking for a convoluted you know, origin story, but it told mm-hmm. an origin in a way that was a story that was good, and hopefully it is that first dose of crack for free. Well, not for free, because it's like twenty four ninety five. Mm. But it's that first dose that you get that hopefully is that gateway into Wonder Woman comics, written by Gail Simone and doing very well. Yep, uh, I'm giving it four 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 slices of meatloaf. Yes, uh, and the only reason why I'm not giving it five is because of this unanswered question of the <laughs> invisible jet technology. Uh, that and that's that's the that's the biggest problem that I had with it. So go out and check it out. And if you need more reviews about things, make sure you head over to Majorspoilers.com because we're putting up new reviews every single day. Boy, that first half of the show sure was awesome, eh, Steve? It sure was, Matthew. And I think joining us in the second half of our show uh, should be none other than the uh, the awesome Dr. Peter Coogan, who's the director of the Institute for Comic Studies. Peter, welcome to the show. Howdy, Stephen. Howdy, Matthew. Howdy, Rodrigo. Hey. Uh, one of the things... Oh, no, Matthew's been... <laughs> One of the crazy things that everybody loves is our major spoilers poll of the week. And uh, so I thought this week, instead of waiting to bring Dr. Coogan in when we uh, talk about our main topic, it'd be better to bring him in for the poll of the week because I want to get his input on this. Matthew? It's time. For the millions in attendance and the 19 people listening at home, the major spoilers poll of the week, 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 week. (laughs) Major spoilers poll of the week. (laughs) What do you got for us this week, Matthew? This week we return to the battle of the network robot stars, if you will. And by the way, Robot Wars Part 6. Yes. In this case, we're going to take the lovable robot sidekicks, um, put them in the ring, and see which one of them dies horribly in a flaming conflagration. And, you know, who and all the girls in the audience go, oh, look how cute he's so pretty. In this case, we actually – there's there's a bit of a misconception, I think, about this particular battle, which we'll get into in a moment. But in one corner, of course, from George Lucas's masterpiece – uh, no, I'm not talking about Raiders of the Lost Extraterrestrial Shark. I thought you were going to say Howard the Duck. <laughs> Indiana Jones and the Temple of the Crystal Lead Refrigerator. No. Wait, what? No. Star, Star Wars, Wars yes. you student. Episode yes. 4, R2-D2, the original um, vacuum cleaner, I guess, without a hose. And... Uh, Wow, I'm just totally tanking this evening. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I'll try the veal. Tough crowd. And, of of course, his opponent, R2, comes from a a galaxy long, long ago and a galaxy far, far away. Not quite so long ago, and yet paradoxically somehow further in the past, 
Bubo, the robot owl from Clash of the Titans, named, of course, for the sores you get when you have the plague. <laughs> oh, fascinating. My, fascinating. my wife is actually throwing the horns and, and uh, headbanging to Bubo. I think he may have a follower. Nice. Oh, no. Well, but uh, ro- robot owl versus robot garbage can, go! <laughs> well, we should uh, hand this over to uh, to Peter Coogan first, since he's our guest of the show. And Peter, you had some actually some interesting information about these two. Yeah, and this uh, uh, naturally comes from Wikipedia, but basically it says that uh, Bubo, despite source. Bubo's appearance to the droid R2-D2, Ray Harryhausen actually started work uh, on Clash of the Titans before Star Wars was released. And so contrary to what some critics say, Bubo was invented before R2-D2. But mm-hmm. uh, I have one comment on this on this fight. Wasn't uh, Robot Wars canceled? So, <laughs> Oh, that's okay. <laughs> No, Two not ours. I have to we, say we keep digging. Response. We keep digging things up, and we won't let them die. Matthew, nothing, nothing dies on Ranger spoilers. And secondly, virtually everything I say probably came from Wikipedia. I just don't give my sources. <laughs> so, meanwhile, moving on, <laughs> Doctor Coogan, who's gonna who's gonna win between these two? Uh, well, if it's an actual fight, um, Bubo can fly, and therefore, just as you pick Superman. Because he's got heat vision against the Hulk, yeah, you right. pick Bubo because he can pick things up and drop them on R2's head. There you go. Mm-hmm. I like that answer. Matthew. But can he pick up something big enough? I mean, what is the airspeed velocity of an unladen mechanical owl? <laughs> and is he African or European? Uh, what? Wait, but no. Secondly, uh, um, I, have to, I have to look in the other direction. And this is the thing that I've pointed out many a time. R2-D2 is a sailor. If you and I, I hate to reference episode one, but if you watch episode one, the first inter- the first appearance of R two, he goes out into airless space, climbs out on the side of the ship, watches the four other astromech <laughs> droids get blown to pieces, repairs the ship, and gets back in. And I have this theory that the reason we don't understand R two's beeps and whistles is because he also curses like a sailor. <laughs> and You're if you actually he's listen, Popeye, exactly, he's Popeye only with you know a, a robot dome. And he's going to give Bubo some a venerable disease. <laughs> Just wow. <laughs> Meanwhile, back at the ranch. Here's my theory: R two D two is is tough enough to exist in airless space, whereas Bubo, I think, got blowed up or 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 knocked and crashed apart. He's basically clockwork. I'm going to go just for the toughness factor for R2-D2 because even if you can hit somebody with something, if you can't lift something big enough to hit them, and let's say, for instance, they might have onboard lasers and the ability to say, you know, MF or in beeps and whistles and be adorable, I have to go with R2. Rodrigo. Um, I think I'm going to go with Bubo on this one. Um, he was he was forged by a god, which is already you know I mean R two D two came out of an assembly line. He's clearly an aberrant model because he's more badass than any other astromech droid. Um, but I, I mean I've ever since I watched Clash of the Titans, I I would like point at the TV and said I I want one of those every time Bubo would come on. Also when the giant scorpions would come on, but uh, <laughs> I think that's just the kind of kid I was. Um, Army of giant scorpions and a robot uh, sidekick, yeah. Yep, that's that's basically what my uh, imagination was like uh, for uh, uh, up until uh, 
up until I started watching the Muppets, and then I was like, okay, I want to be one of those, and, <laughs> and still have a robot fraggles, owl. And then the Fraggles came out. And yeah, said, the Fraggles were like, nah, nah, I, I wasn't into the Fraggles. Anyway. And uh, then the Snorks came on. And, <laughs> and I was like, if if a Snork and a Smurf got into a fight, who would win? So I guess that's the, the audience. That's the next, uh, yeah. <laughs> That might be the next poll of the week. In any case, uh, despite regressing horribly into the uh, 80s and early 90s, I'm going to go with Bubo. All right. And I am going to pick I'm going to pick uh, Bubo as well, simply because he's got the maneuverability. And I've never seen a Jawa take down a flying owl yet. So, <laughs> Unfortunately, though, Rodrigo, uh, the mass major spoilers audience does not agree with us. No surprise there. It's understandable. This one actually had a lot of votes already cast. There's still time to cast your votes over at Majorspoilers.com. 333 people have cast their vote already. With wow, Argent that's D2. half of 666. I know. My goodness. Uh, oh. Well, check this out, Matthew. 77% of them are voting for R2-D2. Nice. Well, you know why that is? Why? This proves a theory that I have at my house called Matthew is always right. Uh, let me guess, your your wife is giving you that number one salute once again. No, my wife left the room about five minutes ago when I said, <laughs> <laughs> So the reason why we have uh, Dr. Coogan on this week, he's again the director of the Institute of Comic Studies, is we're talking about adaptations this week, and we thought that this would be a perfect time to talk adaptations because of the recent Watchmen movie, and of course 75% of the major spoilers crew this week has seen the movie. They're the Watchmen. Uh, so I guess let's start off, uh, Peter, with the first question to you. Why do we adapt things from one medium to another? What's the appeal there? Well, actually, I've got a great answer from that from uh, Linda Hutchins, okay, um, who's written a book called A Theory of Adaptation. Mm -hmm. And she has a whole chapter on why. And basically, she proposes that um, in, in essence, everything's adaptation right. um, because there's a desire to tell and retell stories. And that um, uh, this also ties in with something that uh, John Coelty said, basically, that what we want is a balance between convention, the familiar, and invention, the new. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and stories that can do that um, are the stories that we like, the ones who balance it correctly. So, for instance, you know, Star Wars in a sense, doesn't have anything new in it. It's just, it's a balance. It brings in old things, familiar space opera and so forth. And yet it does it in a way that's slightly different, but not so different because if it's too inventional, it can't have a mass popularity. Hmm, uh, but if okay. you look back, if you look back into the old oral traditions, you know, what was, Beowulf was retold and retold. The Iliad, you know, grew uh, over time to include lots of other stories. Homer was sort of an editor. Mm -hmm. uh, this is this is you know what what is it that your kid says to you, right when you get done reading a story, again, yeah, again, again, yeah. again, again, yeah. It, it, what we want out of, um, but I gotta tell you, I don't know how many more times I can, I can <laughs> adapt Goodnight Moon to satisfy <laughs> this kid who wants to s hear the same thing over and over again. Yeah. So you know this is just this is part of of what we do is because when we read. Uh, what literature does is it gives us a, a controllable world that we can understand where where it's it's suffused with meaning, where everything that happens in the story has meaning. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. if you look at your life, your life has no meaning, right? He's right. It has no inherent meaning. And so we, we, we tell ourselves these stories because 
Um, it gives us a way to structure. In fact, if you look at the differences between humans and animals, like tool using, animals use tools, all these things, storytelling. Storytelling is about the only real difference between humans and animals that, that, is, that still holds firm. We don't have storytelling animals. And so that storytelling is basic. And the, the, as uh, uh, let's see, she, uh, uh, Linda Hutchinson quotes uh, George Kubler saying that the antipodes or antipodes of human experience of time are exact repetition, which is onerous, and unfettered variation, which is chaotic. And so we want repetition, but we want innovation. And what adaptation does is it gives us, it fulfills both desires at once. So in it other words, I guess the if, desire for repetition and for something new at the same time. Right. So if, if we are the cavemen sitting around the fire, or even the Greeks, or even the people in the Old West, and we're starting to tell these stories, then a good adaptation is taking a story like Homer perhaps in the old west and telling that story but setting it maybe in the civil war you know mm -hmm. here's the hero that's gotten separated during uh the battle of the gettysburg or whatever and has to make his way back home yep. and along the way he has all of these ad uh, adventures right or yeah. or if we look at a movie like oh brother where art thou mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. a retelling of the iliad the odyssey, the iliad, or the odyssey. Yeah. yeah is that is that what is that what she's getting at these yeah yeah, and and there's a, there's a pleasure that comes from knowing, being in the know, being in on the joke. When you mm -hmm. when you, the other story from the Civil War that's the Odyssey is Cold Mountain, right? And knowing the original story gives you this this uh, little moment of pleasure when you recognize what's going on because you you feel like you know what's going to happen, except you also at the same time don't know exactly how they're going to handle it. Mm -hmm. Well, and right. I I guess that's kind of the part of the problem then, because does that, and this is an open question for anybody, does that draw you out of the story when you're suddenly going, oh, wait, this is XYZ Casablanca. story? This is, yeah, we were talking barbed wire in Casablanca uh, a while ago, and barbed wire, the movie, is almost a word for word rip of mm -hmm. Casablanca. And as soon as you realize it, it goes beyond. There's Pamela Anderson running around in skin tight leather. What's she going to do next to. Oh wait a minute! I know how this movie's going to end. <laughs> right? Is that is that a drawback to adaptation, Matthew? That's that's actually the drawing point to an adaptation for me. Essentially, if you break down what Doctor Coogan says, and I I I, I have a, a vague understanding of eight dollar words. Basically, change is bad. People don't like change, but they want you to give them something that is quote unquote new, something that's innovative, but they don't want it to be too new. So, so let's say you're telling a story in comic terms. Let's say, for instance, you're telling a story about aliens who have come to Earth and they're going to take over, but they're going to do it in secret, sort of an invasion that is secret. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah now, let's say, let's say you take that, you know, the, the, the tropes of that story and you play with it and you play with it and you put just enough twist on it to where it leaves things afterwards in a different state. And you're like, well, sure, this feels familiar. And sure, this is essentially, you know, six months to tell the story of Fantastic Four number two, mm -hmm. which is almost what it breaks down to. It's familiar enough to where you're like, hey, I, I, I like this. This is, this is doing stuff. And I'm going, I understand this. And then you get to the end and you're like, hey, that was a little different. 
And so is that enjoyable, though, when it has enough of the little differentness to it? For me, it's more enjoyable because I like being the, the one who goes, ha ha, well, that was a reference to Socrates' letter to the plebeians when he said, ha ha, you Socrates. Ha <laughs> uh -huh, you're you plebeians. <laughs> yeah, I like being that guy. Peter, but does, it, does it ruin it for you? Uh, no, uh, I have that same, it's that same feeling of being privileged of being on the inside. Uh, when, when a storyteller includes Easter eggs, mm -hmm. right? The mm -hmm. little secret thing, uh, 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 the director of the first two X-Men movies talked about this, uh, Brian Singer, right. that, you know, he, he did those, he did those things intentionally because for the, for the general audience, they don't, you know, they're not going to get them. They don't care. They just pass them by. But the comics fans know it, and it makes them feel like they've been included. It makes them feel mm -hmm. special, right? Mm -hmm. And we all we all like feeling included. Okay. And so that's that's in one of the ways that the adaptation works because it, when you go to uh, see a movie where you've already read the book, which I actually recommend the opposite. I could talk about that. Um, it, but when it's when it's done right and you like it then yes you feel good about it you feel included and and you want to, it gives you a chance to experience the story again you know when 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 i'm reading to my 2 year old you know again again we've been reading the same books for the past week every night but you know she gets older she's going to want to see some variation in that she's going to want to see some change like you Stephen, you were saying your son about the, how many times can you vary good night moon it's the same thing and right. so as we get older and want more complex things but we still want to know what we're seeing. It's very rare that you want to see something that's completely, totally unconnected to anything else you've ever seen. Okay. Rodrigo, do you have the same feeling or a different take? Or No, I think it's it's about the same. Uh, although one one thing for me um, with sort of Watchmen specifically is going in, I kind of knew what they were going to do. I mean, I knew that they weren't going to deviate too far away from Watchmen. Right. Whereas, and that made me a little bit less excited about it. Whereas when I went to see um, Batman Begins or The Dark Knight, I knew that certain things were going to be there, mm -hmm. but I didn't know what was going to happen in the movie. And I think for me, it's kind of the reverse. It's the, the familiarity is the characters, but the situation is what I wasn't familiar with. And that's kind of what drew the excitement for me. Well, let's yeah. let's talk about Watchmen and then Batman in, in kind of maybe that order, Rodrigo, because you said you knew that they weren't going to deviate too much from Watchmen. So therefore, you were less enthusiastic about it. Mm -hmm. Right. Did Watchmen... I don't know how to phrase this. Just a yes, no from everybody. How faithful of an adaptation was <laughs> the Watchmen movie with the Watchmen graphic novel? Yes. <laughs> it was pretty close. No. It was, it was, I, no. I would say it was very faithful. Okay. All things considered, it's about as faithful as it could have possibly been, it seems. Okay. Without being, you know, a nine-hour movie. Right. Peter? Right. Yeah, that's about the way I feel. I would I would give Watchmen a B overall because I think that they, um, I think they did a, well. Obviously, they didn't do as good a job as they could have done because I didn't give it an A. But uh, yeah, it was it was about as faithful as it could have been. There's certain things that I felt they could have actually done slightly better, taken advantage of. Uh, an example of is when they're uh, Dan and uh, and Lori are going into the alleyway. Mm -hmm. And in the comic book, uh, we're back at the studio and the, the government uh, controller on, uh, on Dr. Manhattan says, you know, don't get into any tight corners. Well, that voiceover is done over Dan and Lori entering 
the oh, uh, right. the alleyway. Mm-hmm. Now, there's no reason they couldn't have remained 100% faithful on that. Mm-hmm. And right. it would have had that double resonance. Right. The same thing happened with um, the charity performance. When uh, uh, Dan and Lori, the first time they sleep together, um, and it kind of comes to a, a inconclusive conclusion, at on the in the comic book, they're showing a, a, a performance of Osmandius doing a charity uh, gymnastics yeah. exhibition, mm-hmm. and so the two, the two, the, the the commentary from the TV comments on what's going on with the sex right. scene. Right, this and is a man works. in his forties, ladies and gentlemen, yeah. and that comments on Dan. And what that says to you is, it says that that it compares Dan and Osmandius, right, the ultimate right? man and, and the normal man. The ultimate man and the normal man, and then when it comes down to their fight at the end, and how easily Osmandius dismisses him, it, that's that has a resonance because they set up for it. And so I think that they could have done some more things like that. On the other hand, um, one of the things about adaptation, for instance, is that all movies. Um, this is from Thomas Leitch, uh, adaptations, film adaptations, and his discontent. He talks about the way that uh, movies not only have to uh, reflect their sources and adapt their sources, but they also have a secondary uh, a thing where they have to, um, uh, they have to decide what movies they're going to avoid uh, uh, drawing on. For instance, mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings, when they made that movie, they, the movies, they had to also sort of avoid some of the things from Star Wars mm-hmm. right. and the Matrix trilogies right. or um, uh, Gone with the Wind. They had to avoid certain things from uh, Birth of a Nation. Mm-hmm. So even though the clan is present in Gone with the Wind, the novel, the clan couldn't be present in Gone with the Wind, the movie, because it would link into or connect with um, uh, birth of a nation. Uh, the Birth of the Nation. So th- that's that's something that movies have to deal with that um, that books don't have to deal with in the same way. It's a, it's an extra burden, and so. With with uh, with the Watchmen, you know, they had these other superhero movies they had to deal with. So having um, you know doing certain things would have opened themselves up to it. Kind of would have weakened the movie mm. in many ways because it would have looked like they were imitating other things. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's kind of ironic too, since probably most of the superhero movies that have come out recently are referencing or have drawn their inspiration from the Watchmen, which the book came out, you know, 20 years right. before. Sure. But going exactly. back... Exactly. And so that's what they had to... That's one of the problems that they had to deal with because it took them 25 years to make the movie. Right. So right. going back to your... Or not really your definition, but the definition that you gave of adaptations then, Watchmen should be considered a successful adaptation because it gave fans the inside stuff, all the, the little Easter eggs, the little tidbits... You know, here's constant references to uh, five minutes to midnight throughout the film, just like in the book. And so people who are paying attention to that get that enjoyment from it. But then on the other hand, you've got something new in the fact that the villain is not a big uh, made up alien, but it is it's Dr. Manhattan, this this godlike being that everyone has to be aware of. See, that was my complaint, actually, Um some of the subtlety is lost in adapting it for a larger audience. And my major complaints have been Dan specifically, to me, is played too young, too vital, and too Batman mm-hmm. for, you know, for my taste. To me, Dan is, is, is older than that actor. 
to me, Dan is a lot less, you know, superhero-y. Dan is just a guy who used to be a superhero who maybe still kind of fits in his super pants. Mm -hmm. And also the one thing that I found very, very jarring throughout, uh, well, aside from Rorschach's change in speech pattern, which I understand why they did that. You kind of had to do that, you know, but Rorschach's thing with never using the the article of a sentence right. being gone bothered me. The fact that they had to find an explanation for the title. Oh, so right, they right. Named, yeah. they named the Crime Busters the Watchmen, and it felt to me like one of the more subtle aspects and one of the more entertaining parts of it for me is how everything isn't spelled out mm -hmm. in the book. And the fact that it's called Watchmen bears no resemblance or, you know, yeah. it's not drawn from the characters. It's not drawn directly from the story. It's a quote about, you know, Watchmen on the walls of, of democracy or something of, those, of that nature. To me, you know, spelling that out several times, you know, kind of beating us over the head yeah. with they're killing the Watchmen. It kind of takes away from what I consider to be one of the major strengths of the book, which was the storytelling is laid out. There are there are Easter eggs there, and there are bits of it that you don't catch until the third or fourth reading. And there are right. things that are specifically designed to be subtle, that are specifically designed to where you don't notice or you don't necessarily catch them. I think it was the, the third or fourth time through when I caught, and of course this didn't make it into the movie, the reference to... To Hooded Justice oh, right. and, and Captain uh, Metropolis yeah. being a couple. Right. It takes a while. You have to piece these things together. And my first time through, that wasn't a focus. And it, I think it's in Sally Jupiter's Playboy interview. She mem mentions two guys being a couple. And I'm like, wait a minute. Right. They were talking about Nellie and H.J. fighting. Uh-oh. Oh. Yeah, oh. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, but this is the thing, though. And I, I think this is the problem with a lot of adaptations that people – and true fans of a source material, whether that be Twilight or whether that be Ulysses or whether that be, you know, whatever. What people Very fail fun. to realize is that when you're making an adaptation or you are translating it into the medium, you've got a set time to do it, and you're not targeting the core audience, right? You're trying to mm -hmm. target a much broader audience. So things that you might find important, Matthew, or you might find important, Rodrigo, or that you loved and cherished and, and really think that this absolutely has to be in the in the movie, may not play to a much broader audience. Uh, going back to The Lord of the Rings, look at, uh, you know, when Bilbo Baggins turns 100 years old. They really don't have that whole party uh, scene it played out in there. No. Uh, you know, it's just kind of this, this happens, and it's just this little minor bit at the beginning of the movie, but it plays an important role in... The first, I think, chapter of the Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. so, Somebody used to complain that Tom Bombadil didn't make yeah, it. Yeah, that into the didn't film. make it in there either. So, you know, I think that when we talk adaptations, I think people need to realize that things have to be dropped in order to appeal to a much broader audience. Oh yeah. Well, and I have to say that in reading the, through the stuff on adaptation this week, one of the things that I've discovered is that in the field of adaptation studies, for a long time. Uh, the idea was th this sense of fidelity. That was the that was the test. Yeah. And and the recent scholarship on it says no, you know, fidelity is not is not the ultimate test. That in fact, the best way to understand adaptation, and I'm going to use a couple big words here, is uh, <laughs> um, a dialogical uh, dialogic intertextuality. Which all that means is that you have texts 
in dialogue with each other mm-hmm. that the that the adaptation is not um an inferior version of the original and and a great way to think about that is is uh the uh man who shot liberty valance and right. uh the man who would be king right have you guys read uh the original stories on those i have read the man who would be king but i haven't read the man who shot liberty valance yeah. in in both of those cases the movies are um i feel are superior uh works of art and are bigger and uh and do a lot more with the man who shot liberty valance it's much more mythic in the movie mm-hmm. but you know would would you really want the movie version uh failsafe or do you want um uh um what's the stanley kubrick movie uh that i can't think of the nuclear bomb one strange love dr strange love you know which of those you you and of course you prefer strange love um and even even to to works like fight club right the movie fight club is superior to the book and so there isn't a, this isn't always direct. It's it's depends upon how good is it. You know, is if it's a good adaptation, then it's a good adaptation. But you got to think about that the dialogue between the texts and not a sense of fidelity because fidelity is not always a good idea. Well, okay. then then let's take Batman for example, especially The Dark Knight. Right. You know that is not taking from one story. It's not one issue. It's not even a a. a a particular year's worth of issues. This is taking 70 years worth of Batman stories, throwing them in the pot and seeing what bubbles to the top. Mm-hmm. How then is that different from The Watchmen? The Watchmen is a very closed uh, source, but Batman is very much open and open to a lot of interpretation. Why does something like that work for audiences and Watchmen maybe not so much? Because Looking at the second week's box office returns, Watchmen dropped 67%, while Dark Knight continued to stay high for months. I think it's precisely that. I think they, um, you know, again, these were both done, I think, by very competent people, both of these movies. And except for Batman, they had that much text that they could sift through. They could say, okay, well, this is good and this is bad. And this part of this story where Joker burns the money is cool, but we don't need the rest of the story. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, they they were able to get very iconic moments and take them out. Whereas in Watchmen, in order to maintain the through line of the whole thing, there were things that they had to have. Right. And th- that kind of locked them down into certain decisions. Watchmen is an adaptation. The Dark Knight is not. And I'll tell you what it is. It's a distillation of the essence of several different good Batman stories. Mm. So while they've taken bits and pieces that work, Things from other storylines and, and, you know, issues and, you know, like you said, 70 years worth of history to play with. They're not adapting so much as they are taking what fits for the story they want to tell and then using those as kind of touchstones for those of us who come from the other media. Many of the people who go to see a Batman movie are not going because of a Batman comic. They're going because of Adam West or Michael Keaton or Val Kilmer. They're going because when they were a kid, they had a Batman doll. Or when they were a kid, they watched the Batman cartoon where Batmite came from planet Ergo. (laughs) Batman is a multimedia phenomenon. Batman is not necessarily so much anymore an adaptation of a character because if you look at it, there—I mean, there are many different iterations of Batman out there, from 
you know, the Dark Knight, square-jawed Batman who wears a target on his chest because he can't armor his head, to, you know, Adam West whose ribs stick out further than his chest. I mean, <laughs> people, people love Batman as a concept, but to me, none of the Batman movies in my lifetime have been adaptations so much of the, as they've been. Here's, yeah. Here's, here's, yeah, here's Batman the franchise. Here's Batman the marketable what have you. I want to say gestalt, for lack of a better word. Batman the because... towel. <laughs> exactly. Well, then let me, let me stretch that a little further then, Matthew. Yes. Uh, here we have Sin City, Frank Miller movie, that probably no one had really – well, I shouldn't say no one. A lot of the – what made the, peop, uh, the audience goers that made the, the movie so famous – we're not people that had read the graphic novels, right? Right. Yet, here we have The Spirit, also a Frank Miller film, that uh, probably a lot fewer people had read that source material, yet one succeeds and one fails as an adaptation or as, an, as a distillation of stories. Why? If I may? Sure. Have you ever read the story of Gerhard Schnabel? No. It is a spirit section from like I, I want to say either forty nine to fifty two. It's later period after Will returned from the war, mm -hmm. and after he started taking the focus less on the spirit as a character, as an adventure strip, and more as telling an overall story or telling bits and pieces of story with an ensemble cast. The story of Gerhard Schnabel is the story of this this total schmuck who can fly, swears he can fly. Nobody believes he can fly, and he ends up proving that he can fly during a shootout between the spirit and some criminals, and no one sees him fly because they're all looking at the, the battle. He's shot and dies, and everybody says, oh, the poor schmuck thought he could fly. And the whole point of this piece is not the spirit as a character. It's not, my city is screaming. It's not about what Frank Miller wants to tell a story about. It is a very esoteric, it's a very emotional, it's a very weird sort of think piece about, you know, it, it, everybody has, you know, their dreams and everybody has worlds un, unthought of within them. And oh, by the way, the spirit's in it, so you like it. The spirit movie to me was a complete misunderstanding of the character, which means that People who like the spirit probably aren't going to support it, which means there isn't really going to be much in the way of word of mouth. And quite frankly, Frank Miller's style, mm -hmm. not just his art style, but his directing style and the edge, the, the, the idiom with which he uses to tell his stories are completely dichotomous to what the spirit was about. The spirit was soft edges and, you know, rumpled suits and... Frank Miller is all sharp edges and violence and square jaws and, you know, men bleeding and beautiful women who want to give these gargoyles one last lay before they die horribly tomorrow. And it's, I mean, it's, you can't, you can't mix matter and antimatter. You just can't do it, Stephen. <laughs> but, it's almost as though he, he had the complete opposite of what the character and I'm not even a spirit fan. I've read some spirit stories in passing. I've read some of the really great ones that people say, here's a wonderful story that Will did that was really great. And I, right. you know, I love some pieces of it. But I look at – I mean I looked at the, the cover of Wizard 
with that sharp-edged Frank Miller black spirit and the blood-red tie and the little thing that said, my city is screaming. There are eight million cities. I right. wish all of crime had one throat so I could get my fingers around it, whatever it said. And I went, you know what? I'm not interested. Well, you talk about Wizard, Matthew, and, and certainly Major Spoilers is an internet site, and you're listening to this on your on your media device. Peter, does do adaptations, I mean... What role does the internet play in the success or failure of an adaptation? Or have you looked at anything like that? Or... You know, I haven't looked at, at that. Um, obviously, you know, they they do. I talk about this in my book, um, Superhero, The Secret Origin of Genre, mm -hmm. about the way in which uh, the fan press and the San Diego Comic-Con has become important for wooing the fans that if they can get some buzz there, that they, they, they get this built-in audience. And so... I, you know, they're definitely Hollywood is definitely aware of fans and they're definitely uh, making a, a, a direct effort to woo to woo fans. Um, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, one of the things that I actually uh, wanted to touch on is um, there's an article called uh, Adaptations Without Sources. It's also by Thomas uh, Leitch. And I'm going to send you all these references so you can put them up if okay. anybody wants to follow them up. Uh, one of the things is when you think about uh, the spirit or you think about Batman, it's different from adapting uh, the Watchmen because Watchmen adapts a single work. And so you can compare it with the spirit, with Batman. You can only sort of compare it to 50 years, 70 years. And the great example of this is Robin Hood, right? right. The, the, the Errol Flynn movie. When you think about that, that's <laughs> actually the text because almost all of Robin Hood, at least since then, has drawn on that movie. But if you go back before then, the adaptations like the one with uh, Douglas Fairbanks wasn't anything like that. And that there is no single version of Robin Hood that includes all the best-known features of his story. That, that all that stuff that's in the movie is drawn from a number of different stories. Mm -hmm. And it's become this kind of canonical thing. The same thing is true with Mallory's Mort d'Arthur. It's become this canonical thing, but it's all from these pieces before then. And so... What works with those kind of things, with those uh, adaptations without sources, essentially, or with many, many sources, is is what I refer to as resonant tropes. It's these moments that uh, that have existed over time, where um, where creators and fans and readers and so forth have identified those as the moments that get at the interpretation of the character that we like. Because um, you know the Batman TV show was a valid interpretation of the character. It was actually pretty close to the character. Of that time, though. Of that time. But, you know, looking back on it, we, we that's uh, what we wanted changed out of it. And uh, one of the articles I read uh, talked about how the George Clooney, Batman and Robin, it was actually an evocation of the Batman TV show. But what people wanted out of Batman, the, the resonant tropes we wanted, the moments that we wanted, the interpretation of the character that we wanted, had changed, and so it you know it came. It was a bad movie, but it also came out at a bad time. Oh, right. Um, and so I, I think a lot of this stuff um, it ties into the, with the way that we view adaptation. There's this idea that you've got to be you got to have fidelity. You know, mm -hmm. you've got to be true to it. But then there's the idea also that well, it's not you know as we see with Man Who Shot Liberty Valance and and, and uh, that well, it's not what is it? it's not fidelity to exactly the text. It's fidelity to the spirit of it. Mm -hmm. Well, which spirit is that? Well, it's the one that I like, right? Because yeah, Frank right. Miller 
what the difference between Sin City and Spirit is that Rob Rodriguez was faithful, you know, painfully faithful in some cases to uh, Miller's Miller's vision and Miller's text, right? Just as Zack Snyder, I felt was uh, 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 with Three Hundred, you know, the same thing. But Miller wasn't he imposed his own vision on the spirit and i don't think that vision related closely enough to the spirit but then again manishat liberty valance doesn't relate closely enough to the original manishat liberty valance but i know which one i prefer so i think his vision just i didn't like miller's vision i think it failed okay um i don't think he got the character but you know he didn't get what i liked about the character mm-hmm. right you know and and he got what he wanted to like about the character but you know, American Psycho, right? There's a mm-hmm. there's a great example. The movie is completely different from the book. And the book is this horrendous, horrible, misogynistic <laughs> thing. The movie, I've seen I've seen a, a a review of it that talked about it. It's essentially undoes a lot of that. It it, it undermines a lot of that misogyny. Yeah. Uh if you read it if you read it the right view it the right way. So right. Again, I think it's mostly just uh, the reason that Batman Dark Knight did better is it's a better movie than Watchmen. Watchmen is partially trapped in its time. You know, the the when I read it and I read it, I picked it up from the first issue and I read it all the way through, you know, as it came out. And, I, you know, the nuclear war was a possibility then right. between the U.S. and Soviet right. Union. And it's not now, whereas whereas in Dark Knight, he's dealing with, you know, they're dealing with. Uh, surveillance, right? right Terrorism. Yeah, right. These these things ring much more true to us now than the issues in Watchmen do, and so I think that's also part of it. Well, we've been talking a lot about you know comics to film or books to film. Do you guys have any best adaptation or worst adaptations that you feel from comics well, to film? I know what I think is the worst. Okay, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. All right, uh, I think yeah. that's probably that on rough. everybody's list. Uh, what about your best, Matthew? For me, I'm weird. You should know this. Probably, I think the best comics to film adaptation to me was probably Ghost World. Okay. Hmm. Which was, you know, very, very faithful to the vision while also, you know, taking into account you can't necessarily do everything in a 90-minute movie that you can do on paper. But that doesn't mean that you can't do something else that's just as interesting. Right. Rodrigo, do you have a best worst? Um, I think, uh, well, League of Extraordinary extraordinary gentleman certainly was heinous um but um for me i think uh hellboy did something really interesting for me which the first is that one or the second one? the first one okay the second one uh, not not on account of being a bad adaptation just on account of being kind of a it's sort of a a movie that didn't really have much direction okay. as far as the second one the first one though um i watched it and i had only read a little bit of hellboy and then when we went back and read seed of destruction right i was like this is not hellboy's voice right because if you read hellboy later hellboy comes into that kind of cocky um you know he knows what he's doing get off his case kind of voice which is uh, was then amplified in the movie right so the the movie hellboy kind of encapsulates something that i like a lot about hellboy that is not actually always present in the original text of hellboy mm-hmm Peter, what about you? Um, well, yeah, I agree basically with everything you guys have been saying. That obviously the two Spider-Man movies and uh, Batman Begins also. Um, although one of my sort of personal favorites in terms of best has got to be Flash Gordon. Um, oh, I love that. 
Yeah, and the thing about Flash Gordon, and this is, I actually watched the sci-fi TV show, and it, it improved halfway through, but it was a bad TV show. Yes, it was. Uh, <laughs> but the thing about it was, there is no grand old tradition of Flash Gordon. Like, if you go back and read the original strips, which are compelling, but in terms of characterization, you know, Flash has always fallen in love, or at least, you know, he gets involved with these these various queens, and, and Dale's always just jealous about him. Right. and. The other thing about Flash Gordon is there's lots and lots of stuff from Flash Gordon that nobody ever adapts. Everybody always adapts like the first couple of years of Flash Gordon where he's going around and 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 gaining allies and stuff. And the original Flash Gordon, he's willing to accept the kingdom from Ming and go sit on his on his butt in a castle somewhere. Wow. You know, but but Ming hates him. And so, you know, the, in many ways, Raymond's storytelling isn't that great. Mm-hmm. You know, but obviously the pictures are compelling and there's something about it that makes you keep turning the pages. But uh, so I like Flash Gordon, even though in many ways the kind of campiness of it got away totally from from something that Raymond was doing. But it had that sort of pulp cheesiness. Yeah. That was great. Uh, in terms of, you know, worst you know, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, um, uh, Catwoman. Yeah. You know, oh, there's oh. yeah. Uh, you know, there's lots of. Uh, can you believe that? He said the C though. word. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Superman 4 uh, was like pretty West terrible. Yeah. Not um, as bad as Superman 3. Come on, yeah. Richard Pryor. Yeah. yeah, but I like the Superman Red, Superman Blue. Well, it's not Superman Red, Superman Blue so much, but the, I like the split Superman in that. I, I, mm. I like the I like the scene where he's he's drunk in the... in the, uh, um, And I like some of the stuff with Lana in that. So yeah. I thought there was... There was stuff worth I, saving in that movie. I don't know if I have a best worst. I certainly would think that Watchmen is probably my favorite best adaptation so far. But if you would have mm-hmm. asked me a year ago after we talked about Iron Man and going back and reading those first issues of Iron Man yeah. and the modern retelling of Iron Man and how those two comic adaptations were faithful from the silver to the modern age and then seeing that first half that movie translated almost exactly – you know, I would say that that would have been a, a, a great adaptation. Now, yeah. certainly Catwoman and Fantastic Four and and uh, uh, League would fall into my worst lists. Hmm. Not that uh, Jessica Alba is anything bad about her. but sure. no. Although the first Fantastic Four movie, while I agree it has major problems, and I actually fell asleep during this <laughs> Fantastic Four 2, it was after Comic-Con. We went to see it at 10 o'clock at night. On the other hand, I don't think I would have fallen asleep during Watchmen. Um you know, the thing that saves that first Fantastic Four movie is the portrayal of the thing. Right. And the yes. relationship between between Ben and Johnny. All that stuff is dead, is dead on right. from the comics. I mean, that's very, very faithful and also very effective. I thought, thought that Reed and Sue, of course, you know, when they filmed that, the, 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 the actors in, in MacGuffin or whatever his name is, uh, and, <laughs> and uh, they, they, they weren't in the same city. They didn't film it with each other. Oh, wow. You know, it's 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 all cut together, yeah. and and, mm-hmm. uh, and and also, you know, the one thing I have to actually say, one of my issues about superhero adaptations is red hair. Every movie, every movie, has a red hair issue. It seems you know, there's what almost the always one issue? character from the comics because you know you needed to differentiate people and red hair was the way to do that right right you know does jessica alba not jessica alba but is uh is kirsten dunst gonna dye her hair is gwyneth paltrow gonna dye her hair is jimmy olsen gonna have red hair is it almost every superhero movie that they adapt has the issue 
of red hair. And so maybe we should judge them that way. Well, we could, <laughs> How good is your hair? Well, speaking of hair, and I want to kind of close this out as we finish up with adaptations, because we could talk about a lot of different adaptations. Oh, we could yeah. talk about, I mean, we didn't bring up Harry Potter, which I thought the first three movies were really good <laughs> adaptations of the book. Uh, we could talk about Classics Illustrated and how we went from book to condensed book with pictures to make picking up the classics uh, more fun or the current Marvel classics uh, that they have going on. But you mentioned hair, and Doc Savage is one of my favorite heroes, especially the pulp heroes, and I really got into him during high school. Now, um, Bama, uh, James Bama, the guy who painted the Bantam covers in the 1960s, uh, what had happened is the original books came out, in, or the original pulps came out in the 1930s, and Bantam Books got the uh, license to reprint these for a modern age. And it seems like we talked before about every 10, 15, 20, or in this case 30 years, uh, you got to reintroduce the character to make it fresh again. Well, uh, Bama went and got, uh, what's his name, Steve, um, Steve Holland. Rogers? No, no, not Steve Rogers. That but Steve dead. Holland to pose for these covers. And all the Doc Savage covers that you see from the 1960s and early 70s, these Doc Savage ones, these ones that I have hanging up on the wall behind me, feature Steve Holland. The thing is, this freaking haircut that you see, this skullcap haircut, mm -hmm. is not the hair that uh, that Doc Savage had in the original books, and it's not how uh, James Bama originally painted Doc Savage's hair. Mm. Originally, it was this nice flowing, you know, combed, you know, quaff, you know, of hair. But the editor at Bama said, you know what? If we're going to introduce this to new readers, they're not going to want to see these old-time depictions. Mm -hmm. We need to change the hair and make it more modern. We need to make it more sci-fi to draw these young, young new readers in. And so he forced the change into this classic, well, not really classic, but this Doc Savage that most of us know today. And it worked. It went over gangbusters with these kids, and they bought these books again in the, in the 60s and early 70s and made Doc Savage another well-known name. Can you say went over gangbusters again? Went over gangbusters. Gangbusters. Because I love it when people born in the 70s talk like they're out of a 20s gangster film. <laughs> I tell you, boys, it's going yeah, over like see? gangbusters, see? But yeah. I just think We're going to do just, it, see? We're going to knock over the bank with little, a couple of heaters, see? This is Actually, just this it's, little... it's, uh, it, this is from a sh uh, public radio show called uh, Away With Words. The gangbusters comes from the, the radio program, Gangbusters, which is on for a couple of years. And it's come on like gangbusters ah. because the very opening of gangbusters – started with a lot of shooting and tire squealing. And so that's where the phrase to come on like gangbusters, to come on like the yeah, show, the radio show, gangbusters. There we go. So I've maybe always that's, anyway, wondered. We need that at the, the beginning of the show. The more you know. But I mean, the, I just I'm think so that that, here, that, change, that change in Doc Savage made him more accessible to the younger audiences, to new audiences, and introduced a whole new generation. So again, going back to what I was saying earlier, I think you have to introduce change and you have to tweak things to make it more appealing to the mass audience is what's going to work. I think people have and, kind of... Oh, go ahead. I, I think people have kind of always known that, that this the secret to make something, to, to kind of update something is distill and update, you know, bring out what was basic about it and then update the stuff around it. The biggest problem is getting exactly what to distill and what to update, right? Right. I mean, the haircut... Lucky guess. Right. Because you know what? How long did long hair Superman last? Yeah. Not that long. Yeah. Mullet Three Superman. Years. Exactly. So, you know, it, the, the, the hardest part about it is figuring out what exactly you're going to change and what you're going to keep. 
but that's it. That's that's the the essence of adaptation is cut something out and replace it with something new. You just have to sit there and figure out what it's going to be. Yep, Peter. Yeah. And uh, that's actually my concept of resonant tropes gets at that because if you can look at sort of a commercial uh, selection, cultural commercial selection, the the tropes that work that they re- that the writers return to over and over again and that the fans seem to respond to over and over again, those are the tropes that uh, should get included. And I actually have my students in my superhero class do uh, uh, do a sort of template, and I have them say, you know, what should you keep and what should you get rid of? And those, those I love, that's the part of the assignment that I love the most because that shows if they can figure that out, then they've really got the character. And, and, and I actually want to take the ones that are A's and send them to the movie producers and say, look, here's the template. Here's the Bible. Use it. But the other thing with Doc Savage is when they redid his hair, that was actually in some ways more faithful to the original story than his original hair was. Yeah. Because as we all know, Doc Savage had a, a, a sort of a, a bronze plate that he wore on his head. Right. And it duplicated his hair, mm-hmm. and that act- that would work better with the with the Bama paintings of his hair than it would with the original drawings of his hair. Right. Yeah. So, just, if, if, yeah. So again, that's one of the things that works, and 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 what again these new audiences like. Uh, so that kind of wraps up our, our discussion about adaptations. Again, we could go on and on for more hours on this. I'm sure. I uh, could talk about Fantastic Four. You could, but we don't have time this time. Uh, <laughs> Tune in next week, and Matthew will talk about Fantastic Four. Peter, what's coming up next for you? Uh, what's coming up next for me? Uh, there is a conference on Second Life uh, coming up, and I should know the date, but I don't have it. Second Life, the video, the game, the online experience? Second Life, yeah. the uh, um, uh, uh, It's coming up uh, very soon, actually. Um, Thursday. Uh, it's, I think it's actually this week. Uh, it's put together with uh, uh, Institute for Comic Studies is a co-sponsor of it. And I'm sorry that I don't have it. I think it's coming up uh, actually next uh, Thursday. I think it is next Thursday. Okay. Um, but if you're in Second Life, um, you can find it. It's a uh, – uh, Oh, it's actually – it's a conference inside the game. In Second Life. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. This is the second uh, Second Life conference on comics. Um, also there's, I'm not doing it, but, uh, MSU, Michigan State University, where I got my PhD has a, uh, a comics forum that's coming up at the end of next week, um, that uh, I was invited to, but was unable to attend. Okay. Um, and it's nice that they're doing, uh, they're doing that kind of stuff there Cool. because, uh, um, it's, it's, uh, it's great that they're making use of the collection and so forth. I'll find this, let me find this date on this, uh. Okay. Thing. All right. Where where else can people uh, find more about the Institute for Comic Studies or you or anything like that? Sure. At we've got a Facebook page, uh, Institute for Comic Studies, and we've also got uh, uh, www.instituteforcomicstudies. Okay. And uh, I'm at comic studies at Gmail. All right. And if anybody's interested in any articles, um, I can I'm gonna send them to you guys, but maybe I can we can't sort of distribute them. Right. But. Uh, uh, if they can get them for the, through their university or something, or maybe I can get them a copy. Okay. Um, and of course, if you're going to the San Diego Comic Con, look for all the panels that uh, the Institute for Comic Studies is going to be putting on. Uh, there are probably more than than we have time for uh, to talk about this time. 
And I think passes are sold out. <laughs> yeah, four-day passes for that show are completely gone, so you're going to have to get them single day, which is going to cost you a little bit more. Uh, did you yeah. did you find those dates? or? Uh, let me see. Or do we just need to throw them in the show notes? I think we may just need to throw them in the show notes. Okay, like all right. Well, I want to thank you, Peter, for taking your time to talk about uh, adaptations with us, and, of course, Rodrigo and Matthew, and all of you listening on your iPod, mobile device, radio station, uh, television station, wherever. I've got it. Okay. Uh, Let's see. It's a uh, Beth Davies uh, Stavka is putting it on. Okay. Uh, She's a writer. It's it's called Metamorph, and... Oh, I thought I had the date. I'm sorry. Nope, that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, we'll put them in the show notes. People can just uh, scroll down and find it there. Next week, we are going to be talking the New Brighton Archaeological Society in our uh, main section. We've got some other great shows coming up, so you want to stay tuned for that because we know that you love comics, and we do too, and we will see you next time. If you have any questions, comments, topic ideas for future shows, or would like to sponsor a show, send an email to podcast at majorspoilers.com. Visit Major Spoilers at Majorspoilers.com and be sure to check out the Major Spoilers forum. You can also follow Major Spoilers on Twitter at Twitter.com slash Majorspoilers and on MySpace at MySpace.com slash Majorspoilers. Fat Dick's Ray Vision of a Superman. I could save a few bucks and stand around and read through the covers of the comics on the stand. But although every other page would be backwards, I suppose, I could still read the evens and the odds. Well, I don't know. Guess I haven't thought this all the way through. Plus, as soon as the comic book store guy knew, he kicked my butt out on the corner. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. Way. If I was hulking green or gray, I could just bust through that brick wall, take their comic books away. But then the little meat would deal with all the tanks and bombs and guns. Have you ever tried to read a series with all that going on? Guess I need to rethink this plan. How would I back and board my comics with such huge chance? Guess I already told ya. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a major spoiler. Start raving rich like a man of iron. I might not be surprised to find that I might actually have the hard cold to follow an entire storyline. Would I really even need to read upon all those escapades? I mean, who needs such distractions when your sister's such a babe? But the downside is such a beast. Being shot up in a fun bee in the Middle East with a King Santo and soldier. What a major spoiler. What a major spoiler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a major spoiler, whoa, 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 what a major spoiler. Major Spoilers Podcast, copyright 2009. Thank you for calling Sprint Customer Support. Please be aware that this call may be monitored for quality assurance purposes. My name is Bill and my code number is 673361. Okay, how may I help you today? My, my, my phone's not working. Oh, well, sir or madam, have you tried perhaps turning it on? Uh, 
I keep pushing the on button, but nothing happens. Oh, well, that seems like a technical question. Allow me to route you to technical support. <laughs> 